0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Elizabeth May steps down and Doug Ford calls for national unity. The U.S. is pulling out of the Paris Accords. Where does that leave the climate change discussion? And there is new technology being considered by Canadian police called a textilizer to combat distracted driving. Will it see the light of day? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. You know, even when Quebec way back when was talking about separating, it was like the rest of the country rallied around and, you know, tried to keep the country together. Now no one gives a damn. You know, uh, again, one of the comments on Facebook, bye bye. (laughs) Like, oh my goodness. Has, has, do, do people not get in the car anymore and just drive east or west and and tour the great country that we have? It just amazes me. It amazes me to, to no end how we... And it's always been the case, I guess, in a sense, because Canada's such a vast country. It's, it's so different from east to west. But it amazes me how we, we all appear now to be living in our own little silos in our own little neck of the world with our own little social cubicle and we we don't seem to have any empathy for any other other provinces across the country. There seems to be, you know, and, and even when we were talking to Kyle Braid from Ipsos, who's based in B.C., it's like, well, that's uh, that, that's Alberta and Saskatchewan. It's got nothing to do with us. It's not a Western alienation. It's like, well is it better if it's East versus Western alienation as opposed to, you know, uh, B.C. versus Alberta and Saskatchewan, and then they want to separate from the country, and then Quebec with the block and then Atlantic Canada do it. I mean, it's still divisiveness. And it just amazes me that we don't really seem to understand what's going on in the other provinces, and it appears not to have much empathy for each other. Uh, Anyway, uh, that being said, let's bring in Barry Kay, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hello, Scott. Uh, Before we get into this, just your quick thought on uh, some Ipsos numbers that came out that said uh, separation sediment in Alberta and Saskatchewan is at historic highs. Uh, 60% of Canadians say the country is more divided than ever. How come?
1: Oh, I don't know. Look, uh, they love to whine out there, don't they? I, I can't imagine. What well, couldn't you look over look every... Like?
0: Wait a sec, Barry, is that fair? Could you look not over every shoulder and say the same thing? Um, no, I don't think you could because, in fact... Wait a sec, it's, Quebec it's, almost separated a couple of years ago.
1: Well, you know, there was talk about it. I, and I must say, in those days, I, I, I was more <laughs> wait, fearful of Alberta. Wait a than, sec, you're you're blowing off the <laughs> West. But, I, I, and, I'm really not. I'm just saying this isn't new. Um, and that, indeed, Alberta is an area that... In fact, Alberta is a province. has the highest... Uh, uh, G- gdp per capita in the country uh, they don't have ta- I, I i don't I, i'm really not trying to dismiss it i'm just suggesting i'm tired of hearing about it i've heard yeah. about it for much of my lifetime uh, and i don't think they're about to separate i i it's a way that they blow off steam i guess they're landlocked i can't imagine I, I can separation. never see them
0: i can never see them separating let's be honest and all you have to do is look across the pond at what's happening in brec- uh, with brexit to think why are we even going there I, I i'm not concerned about them separating what i'm concerned about is the pockets of of Silos we seem to be operating in. Like oh, BC that, that, and Alberta that, that, aren't getting along. That's certainly true. Then there's um, then I, there's I, I think, us in Quebec. Issue, then there's Atlanta, Canada.
1: The issue's gotten more attention than it needs to. They want to let people know they're unhappy. They've been unhappy in one way or another for a good long time, not always to the same degree. They have less reason to be unhappy than a lot of other places in the country. That said, um, I, th- I don't think we can ignore the concerns about, uh, about pipelines. And I do think that the liberal government, even though I'm I'm very conscious of the the concerns about global warming, I do think that the liberal government is going to make some gesture, whether it be on Trans Mountain or something else, to provide pipelines. Uh, because in f- not just because it's in the interest of Alberta, because it's in the interest of all of us. Mm. Uh, that indeed, the do we realize
0: that-, that Barry? Do we Because re- uh, even talking to people uh, anecdotally, it's like, well, Alberta's having a problem, but that's their problem. It's like, no, do they no. not? Do, do, Can- do Canadians realize this is a Canada problem? This is a Canadian problem.
1: It, it is a Canadian problem. Um, it's it's just not a new problem, and it just
0: yeah, got yeah. a lot
1: of attention because yeah. uh, the uh, the Liberals got wiped out in Alberta and Saskatchewan this time. And I, again, I I've just heard this. For long enough but I'm not particularly concerned, right. as you agree, they really aren't going to separate. I can't even imagine what the logic of separation is. No. How is a landlocked province? Yeah. They would be better off in, unless they think that they're going to join the United States. Um, I just don't see how th- this would all happen. That said, um, I don't want to ignore the fact, you know, that's why I started to talk about the fact that I think they are. there is going to have to be some accommodation to the Alberta energy industry. And they're probably going to have to be more pipelines of some sort. And indeed, if there aren't, just for the environmentalists in the audience, if there aren't, indeed, the uh, the oil is going to get going to get transported in some other way that's even more dangerous by by rail or by 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 truck. That said, I am tired of hearing about the issue yeah. because it it didn't just all begin uh, two weeks ago at the election. This is something that Albertans have complained about on and off of, uh, for the, the better part of 30 years, really going back to the 80s. Um, so that's that's why I'm less sympathetic to the discussion. The fact that there are divisions in the country, sure there are. Uh, Quebec, I think, is still more distinct than Alberta is, but um, I I, I don't find it, I'm not especially engaged by the threat that Alberta's going to separate, and I don't think most of them really take it all that seriously either, but it's a talking point.
0: All right, uh, Elizabeth May uh, of the Green Party stepped down uh, just yesterday. Here's a clip from her.
1: Well, I love the idea. Honestly, though, I would love to be Speaker of the House. The timing isn't right now. I mean, listeners probably don't think about it very much there's a speaker of the house at the front of the room in Parliament you see them on the news now and then but the, that's a very unique process of choosing the speaker it's a it's a secret ballot all members of parliament vote and it only takes place immediately after the election so this time around with brand new wonderful impressive member of parliament for Fredericton jenica Atwin,
0: all right, uh, there she is talking more about the Speaker of the House uh, job. Uh, I guess looking for her next uh, her next position after where she is. Any surprise that she is stepping down? And and what does what do they need to find in a new leader?
1: Not a surprise at all. Uh, maybe I'm a little surprised that it happened that she announced it today or, you know, or yesterday, really, and that it happened so quickly. Look, she's done yeoman service for the Green Party. She really was all there was to the Green Party for the better part of her 13 years in the job. Um, She has uh, talked about this before. Um, I don't think the election was the degree. It was better than, I guess, any other election they've been through, but it wasn't the success that they were hoping for. Uh, The next um, Green leader, I'm, I'm really not involved in the internal workings of the of the Green Party. Uh, it, it may be what do they have
0: to do? What do they have to do to translate this into votes? Because uh, let's be honest, the beginning of the campaign, they were all the chatter. And it wasn't until Jugmeet Singh uh, took off after the debates that, that the pendulum started to swing. So obviously, climate change was a, uh, a big hot button issue in this election. And, and clearly, uh, they are the Green Party. They are the party that's in fashion with that. How can they translate that into votes?
1: Well, it would take a charismatic leader. Again, some thought at the beginning of the election, I I, I never thought that they were going to surpass the NDP, but there was talk even of that. Um, Elizabeth May's campaign was somewhat of a disappointment. Again, they won three seats, which is better than one seat, but uh, they are are not going to have the kind of impact in the House that they had before. Um, I personally think, uh, as somebody who sees myself mostly left of center on issues, I think the Green Party. Um, is not particularly helpful to the Canadian left. I think it basically splits the vote that might otherwise have elected a larger number of MPs. Most of the seats, well, at least two of the seats that they won, were had been NDP seats on Vancouver Island, both the uh, Sanich and the um, uh, the Nanaimo seat. Uh, Fredericton isn't a seat necessarily the NDP would have won, but the fact is that the Greens are splitting the the left wing vote. There are places in this world where the Green Party is a very serious political commodity particularly places like Germany, but basically countries that have proportional representation. If we had proportional representation in Canada, they would have won over 20 seats. Also, aren't would-
0: those very different Green Parties than what we have here? The Green Party here seems to be one issue, and that's it. I remember having Elizabeth May on and, and asking her, what happens the day after you're elected Prime Minister? Tell us what that transition is going to be like, and never really got a straight answer. It, it appears that the that, that Green Parties can be very different depending on where they are, not only within the country, but around the world
1: they have the name green but the fact is we have four canadian parties that are relatively green on global warming basically every party other than the conservatives and i think the conservatives have come to understand that they can no longer just finesse the issue and hope it goes away even though they are they are the only right of center party on that particular issue but the the greens basically have to have an identity beyond just their name and beyond the, the the global warming issue the liberals the ndp and the Bloc Québécois in Quebec, I, that was the real surprise, the election campaign, was the Bloc's performance. All of those parties are greener than the Conservatives and are prepared to at least acknowledge the global warming as an issue. I think we should understand that in Canada, which produces perhaps 2% of, 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 of the pollution in the world and the, the carbon emissions and so forth, somewhere in that area, that we aren't unilaterally going to be able to save the world. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing things. We should. We should be doing more. But if we were all riding bicycles tomorrow instead of driving cars, and I'm not suggesting that's going to happen, the, the, the challenges globally are probably wouldn't be diminished by that degree. Yeah. We need to talk about it. But a and, that's where, part- and
0: that's what seems to get lost in this discussion, Barry. It's either one extreme or the other, and there's no real solution, which lies in the middle, uh, moving forward with this. Because, again, we can't shut off the tap tomorrow. I mean, I've had people on the show saying it's going to take anywhere from, anywhere from 15 to 30 to 25 to 50 years to transition off of fossil fuel.
1: I don't disagree. The um the green the green party in Canada. But why aren't we having
0: that discussion instead of bashing the hell out of each other?
1: Well, uh, look, the liberals and conservatives decided that their best strategy was to try to, to demonize each other at the beginning of the campaign, and that really left the opening for the bloc and for the NDP to the extent the NDP yeah. didn't do all that much better. Mm. In fact, they did worse than last time, but they did better than they seemed to be doing at the beginning of the campaign. Uh, it's not clear that Jagmeet Singh or, for that matter, that um, Blanchette and Quebec were ever really talking serious policy. Uh, they, were, they basically came off as nicer people than than Trudeau and Sheer because they were busy talking you know, about how each of the other was, was unfit for office but, but elizabeth may you 're asking what, what would the, take the Green Party to be more successful? The Green Party has to have credibility as a national governing authority not just on the global warming issue Mm. because they don't own that issue by themselves even if they have more distinct policies positions on it the fact is canadians now understand that there are other parties that are prepared to make gestures toward a a, a cleaner environment as well and that the greens um frankly do not have a a distinctive policy stance on other issues i know there are things in the platform but i don't think most canadians really appreciate what they are um, going back to Elizabeth May, I, I think she's done yeoman service and certainly deserves the opportunity to retire after all this time as party leader, hmm. she's 65 and so forth. But uh, the fact is, she did not run a particularly effective campaign. Her French wasn't particularly good during the debates. And the fact is that she was not able to distinguish herself in in, in the debating situation where people were perhaps prepared to look at her uh, in, in a way that made her suggest suggested that she was a plausible alternative. It's not that the Greens were going to form the government or, for that matter, that the NDP or the bloc were going to form the government. Right. But she never was able to really put forward positions other than she was concerned about the environment, but she's not alone in that. And indeed, people who thought, who were really concerned, and there's lots of, two-thirds of Canadians voted for parties that were basically green, relatively speaking. Um, And the the fact is that um, they felt that the Liberals or the NDP depended on the riding. Different places around the country, different parties were competitive. They did do a little bit better in Atlantic Canada. They won that one seat in Fredericton. They have done better in some of the provincial election campaigns where they've got a seat provincially in Ontario. They've got seats in Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick. I don't want to dismiss them entirely. I just want to suggest that in national elections, they can't do it on the environment alone because they do not own that issue. Uh, there's at least three other parties in different parts of the country who are, who are also campaigning on that issue, even if they aren't quite as assertive and quite as, as um, developed in terms of what their strategies are. But that issue alone is not going to win it for the Greens, and that's why the, other, they, look, the, the good news about the uh, global warming is that, in fact, we now see more and more Canadians taking that issue seriously. But as I say, it's been co-opted by – it was co-opted a long time ago by the NDP. The liberals are there now. The bloc is there. Uh, the greens are going to have to find other things in addition to the environment. Doesn't, it's not that it's a loser. The issue, it's, a, it's an important issue. Yeah. Perhaps in the long term, it's the most important issue. But um, not everybody is, is thinking about, as you were starting to mention in your introduction, that, in fact, the, this is a decades-long process in terms of really changing the world. We in Canada must do our share. We cannot ignore the issue. But we aren't going to be able to do it alone. And I think a lot of Canadians realize that this issue isn't, isn't the only thing that's going on in Canadian politics.
0: Uh, getting back to unity, uh, the Prime Minister's office announcing that uh, the Prime Minister will start to meet with, uh, with the premiers next week. Uh, Doug Ford's on a conference call with the other premiers and uh, talking about hosting uh, a meeting of premiers to talk about national unity. What do these leaders have to do to bring everybody back together? How, how much? How much of the division? How much of the division that we're seeing is a result of leadership?
1: Some of it is. I think uh, Ford and, indeed, the uh, other, although the New Brunswick premier has now changed his tune entirely, but Ford and the Western premiers made a point of, of going after the carbon tax. I think they now realize, given the federal election result, that that isn't a winning issue either. Uh, it may be effective in Saskatchewan, maybe even in Manitoba, and certainly in Alberta. But in Ontario, that the uh, Ontario rejected the rejection of the carbon tax that he, he was involved with. Look, Ford is trying to rehabilitate his image. I think he's, he's climbing down on all sorts of other issues. He's starting to pay attention to his caucus. And others, I guess I'm not, I don't have access to the inner decision making within the Conservative Party, but clearly uh, he's been chastened by everything from the booing being booed at the uh, the Raptors celebration back in June to basically being ignored and and shunned really during the federal election campaign. And I, I suspect that it isn't just him. I think people in his caucus have come to understand that if they want to, the next provincial election is over two and a half years away, so it's, it's not going to happen tomorrow and he can rehabilitate himself. But the approach that he took during the first year, of basically it was my way or the highway. He wasn't listening to anyone else. Uh, he was making cuts in all sorts of areas, which hadn't even been uh, suggested during the campaign. I think he's off that. The idea of wanting to sort of be a, a Canadian unity person is, is is part of it. I think we're going to hear less about the carbon tax from him. Uh, I, I think the Western premiers; it's still politically um, popular, but it, it certainly isn't going to be in Ontario. And I think he's going to get off that just as he's gotten off the uh, the idea of uh, changing the regional government, about um, uh, increasing class sizes, about cutting welfare, about cutting aid to uh, uh, your families with autistic children. He, he's basically cut cutting back on all sorts of the things he was talking about during the first year. Uh, There's certainly nothing wrong with the premiers getting together and trying to talk these things out. And, look, uh, uh, Trudeau's not without fault either. Trudeau seemed to run an administration in hindsight where he was paying attention only to his inner circle, not necessarily even to all the the liberal MPs. Now in a minority government, he's going to have to be a whole lot more conciliatory as well. So at least I think we've got a prime minister federally and a premier provincially who, for different reasons, feel that their political circumstances are such, that they are going to be better off being somewhat more agreeable, with, with, Humbled with a bit, perhaps? Yeah, no, I, I think that's going to happen. Talking is only part of it. Uh, the, the thought, the, the threat that Alberta is going to separate as I try to dismiss with, you know, the opening comments, I don't take seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not sure that that even helps the discussion. from but I think uh, people like uh, Kenny in, in Alberta are going to have to sort of cut, cut cut back a little bit as well. I do think there's going to have to be some accommodation of the Alberta oil industry because, in fact, it's important for Canada. A, a lot of our international trade has been based on that. Uh, and that in, indeed there has to be an awareness. of But the fact that Alberta is a a have-not province or is basically being screwed by the system, I don't take that seriously. And that, that talk of talk of separation isn't going anywhere.
0: Uh, do you see a short-term solution here? What can the prime minister do in the next uh, six months to 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 mend these fences?
1: Well, talking and saying agreeable things. I'm I'm not sure that the. Um, Look, first of all, with regard to the pipeline, it takes a while for that to be built in any case. Um, I think um, he is, look, he bought, he got, Bought the Trans Mountain pipeline, rightly or wrongly. A lot of the, the environmentally concerned parties, the Greens and the NDP, aren't going to have anything to do with with extending pipelines. That's a political loser for them. However, ends up for a lot of Liberals, there probably are concerns as well. But I think he is going to try to find some accommodation. He will need conservative. He doesn't have a majority. He's going to have to have conservative votes to support him. I think he will move in that direction. In the next, is it going to happen in the next six months? Perhaps not. But I think there will be discussions that hopefully will will mollify Kenny and the Albertans to understand that the. The federal government is at least listening and is prepared to try to meet them halfway. They're not going to get everything they want, but in fact, there should be some accommodation. I don't think we can ignore the fact that Canada is a producer of, of, of natural resources, and oil is primary among them these days, um, and that our economy is dependent upon being able to produce products, too. I think the uh, the uh, untapped access to the, 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 uh, the tar sands, or the oil sands, as they call it, is not something that will go unchecked. I don't think it's going to ever be as fully developed and, uh, as, as Albertans would like. But I think there has to be an opening uh, that the fact is the Alberta economy is in decline even though they're still better off than almost any other in fact than any other province I shouldn't say almost any other province uh, they, they are better off than any other province, but they've been living high on the hog in many ways um, again not, not even having a provincial sales tax and uh, that uh they going to have to be. A comp- I think both sides are going to have to accommodate themselves a little bit. Talking is certainly a beginning. Uh, how long it's going to take for them to come up with some compromise, I'm not certain. But that's the one area where the Trudeau government is going to have to look to the Conservatives for support in making gestures toward the Alberta energy industry. Not to the, the NDP and the Greens aren't going to have anything to do with that, and I doubt if the block is either. On other issues. Uh, they will be, those parties will be important in terms of whether we're talking about pharmacare or whether we're talking about extended housing programs or so forth. There will be, I think more often than not, the, uh, the uh, Trudeau will be looking toward the NDP, especially because the Greens don't really amount to much in terms of the size of their caucus anyway. And I think, I think the liberals are more comfortable working with the NDP than with the bloc, but occasionally they're going to work with the bloc as well. But with regard to gestures to Alberta, that, that's the one area, certainly, that they're going to have to work with the Conservatives. I, I can't give you a, a time frame in terms of how, how long it's going to be. Um, Kenny's just recently won the election there. In fact, he's got to talk tough because there certainly is anger and resentment in Alberta. Yeah. But frankly, there's always been anger and resentment in Alberta by Westerners. Um, and the fact that the Conservatives sweep Alberta, this has gone back for 60 years, going back to the Diefenbaker in 58. From that point on, that, really, that was over 60 years ago. The, ever since that... Most elections, the, the uh, Alberta has gone, if not solidly conservative, largely conservative. Uh, so that what happened in the last um, the, the, two weeks ago's election is not all that much of a surprise. Only a little bit by way of degree. They got 69% of the vote, which was a little higher than usual. The Conservatives, but um, I, I don't, I just can't get excited about the talk of separation.
0: Barry Kay, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Is always Barry. Thanks for the time, much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's uh, head down to the United States, see what's going on there. Uh, the Trump administration formally notified the United Nations on Monday that it would withdraw from the United States, uh, withdraw the U.S. from the Paris. Uh, agreement on climate change, leaving global climate diplomats to plot a way forward without the cooperation of the world's largest economy, so says the New York Times. Uh, The action, which came on the first day possible under the the Accord's complex rules to withdraw, begins a year-long countdown to the United States exit and a concerted effort to preserve the Paris Agreement, uh, under which nearly 200 nations have pledged to cut greenhouse emissions and to help poor countries cope with the worst effects. Uh, of a warming planet. Uh, Secretary of State Mo- uh, Mike Pompeo says the U.S. approach incorporates the reality of the global energy mix and uses all energy sources and technologies cleanly and efficiently, including fossil fuels, nuclear energy and renewable energy. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Richard Rood is with us, Professor of Climate and Space Sciences and Engineering at the College of Engineering, University of Michigan, and is with us now. Richard, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. How significant is this, Richard? How significant is it that the U.S. is pulling out of this?
2: Well, I think diplomatically and as a reliable partner, it's it's very significant. Um, we are indeed, you know, the world's largest uh, or second largest economy, world's largest, second largest emitter. Um, we have historically been the largest emitter. And I think that, you know, that from a, a, a good community of, of nations and negotiators, um, it's very bad. From a climate perspective, it's, it's also quite bad.
0: Uh, will this be something that the U.S. has to walk back? Is this something that they eventually will return to the table?
2: Um, I think almost certainly the U.S. will return to the table at some time in the future after a, a change of administration. I think that if it's a Democratic um, administration elected in the United States, the walk back will be very quick. Um, if it is a Republican administration, I think even within the Republican Party, you're seeing more and more um Initiative to take on the climate change problem as a serious and real problem that is important to the country.
0: Why pull? Why would the United States pull out of this? What's what's the reasoning for pulling out of it? As opposed to even though we all perhaps have different views or opinions on it, and certainly different views and opinions on how to uh, how to fix this problem, why not stay at the table? Why pull out?
2: I. In my opinion, of course, it, it's primarily one of political posturing. Uh, there was the idea going into the administration of of supporting fossil fuels, especially supporting coal. So I think it's symbolic um, in in that way. So I think that much of it is political posturing and symbolic. Um, I think that the arguments that somehow it is suppressing our economy um, is, is completely spurious. Um, I, I think that not participating in the emergence of renewable energy more aggressively is more likely to hurt our technology and our economic well-being as well as our sort of competitive position in the world markets.
0: Uh what about the results, the effectiveness of such an accord? Because many who agree with this stance would say, well, you know, it's not going to make a big dent. China and India aren't doing their part. Um, um, does that balance into this in any way?
2: So I think if you look back over the history of international policy from the signing of the United Nations Framework Convention, the proposals of the Kyoto Protocol, there has always been that in this very wicked problem, there is no easy solution. There was a certain, I think, diplomatic genius to Paris that um, got buy-in from all the nations and got people all at the same table, and that that genius was this idea of these nationally determined contributions to greenhouse gas emissions. And everybody at the time realized that this was just a start and it is an important start. And when you look at China and India, um, they are actually, while they are growing and while they are increasing their emissions, they are also simultaneously Um, investing far more in renewables and positioning themselves in what I think will ultimately be perhaps an economic and trade advantage if we were to say to start looking at carbon emissions as part of the cost of doing business.
0: Uh, it's interesting what you're saying about China and India. Canada is, is divided right now on whether to build more pipelines to get its natural resources to market, which are, of course, cleaner than what coal is. Um, many are saying just shut her down, shut her down, shut her down. Uh, how do we get the world on board that although this is a, a, a serious crisis that we must deal with, Um, This is something that's not going to happen overnight, and we have to use what we have to get to the ultimate goal.
2: I think one of the biggest problems that we have, and, and this often comes even from some of the climate advocates, is this magical thinking. And no matter what we do, there is the entrenched infrastructure, the entrenched energy system, and it's it's just going to be a matter of time to get past that, um, and then you know I think we also have to start thinking about how do we manage the carbon. It's it's pretty unlikely that we will completely free ourselves of fossil fuels, um, but you know no matter how much fossil fuel you're you're burning at the scale we are right now, you're still contributing to the problem. So I think we have to start thinking about that management of the carbon as well. So I think there are many technological um, and societal barriers. The societal barriers, the political barriers are are much more difficult than the technological or the scientific barriers. Um, I think that the idea that we're going to sort of emerge with an integrated global solution is fairly naive, and so we're going to see solutions percolating up from regions, from businesses, from the commercial sector, and we're going to see them catch on, and then the ones that probably align with making money are going to, to, to win.
0: Uh, in the end, will it be industry that finds the solution for the reasons you just said? Uh, financially, it will be, be- very beneficial.
2: I think that industry will find a large portion of the solutions. There are a lot of startups, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are thinking about that right now. You even see big companies like Exxon Mobil starting to transition at least their advertisement into, you know, fuels that are based on algae. Um, and you know whether that's greenwashing or not will will ultimately ultimately be be seen. But you know, and it's my opinion that those large energy companies um, are more likely to be part of the solution than they are to be, you know, completely held accountable for for the past.
0: Uh, Certainly in this country, it seems this has become a discussion of extremes. Either you're on this extreme or the other extreme. You either don't buy in or you believe that the the taps should be shut off. Um, uh, How do we separate the fantasy from the reality? How do we come together to find the solution? Which will involve a bit of, uh, of sacrifice on both parts
2: it you know, I I think if you actually look at the polling, I know if you look at the polling in the United States, while there is a public discussion that is dominated by the two extremes, um there's a very large middle that um understands that it's that climate change is an important problem that it that it needs to be addressed and that uh transitions in our energy infrastructure are required for that so the way i have always looked at this problem is, is is as a problem solver um sort of by nature and by profession is is to to really try to empower and and amplify the roles of those much larger you know the number of people in the middle who are interested in the solution and you know, the polarization, the, the divisiveness, um, you know, that's a bigger problem than just climate change. And hmm. I, I don't actually have the kumbaya moment <laughs>
0: myself. So talk about that transitional period. How long will that take? Uh, I've heard, you know, uh, 10 to 20, 15 to 30, 25 to 50. Um, what is that transitional period going to be like? Do we know yet?
2: So I think the short answer is we don't know for sure. When I talk about this in my classes, I, I talk about it in terms of planning cycles and, and generations. So if you look at planning cycles for infrastructure, whether it be you know built infrastructure like refineries and pipelines, or whether it be built infrastructure like cities and things like that, you're generally looking at lifetimes of 30 to 50 years for those things. So you know, right now there are some people who are doing that 30 to 50 year planning and already getting past the fossil fuels and moving to renewables. There are others who are still building and then they're going to expect those assets to last that long. So if I were talking about this in class, I would say probably the fastest reasonable life you know, time span is probably two 30-year generations. Um, there are those who argue that it can be done in 10 years, but I think that those who do that do not actually understand um, you know, the, the, the policy and the political and the societal barriers that have to be addressed.
0: Should countries like Canada, who have an abundance of uh, natural gas or oil, should they be uh, uh, spending on the infrastructure to get that to markets where they're still burning coal? Is, should we be looking at this from a global perspective as opposed to just stop it now?
2: This is this has been a very difficult question, and of course, one of them that involves both the U.S. and Canada has been the Keystone Pipeline. Absolutely, where I I've seen cogent arguments on both sides um, from you know real climate scientists, you know that you know to to continue to to oppose that um, has a strong um reaction that that causes a lot of you know more damage um but uh, is this the right time to oppose it and you know i i think that we very aggressively need to be moving um away from continuing to facilitate um, that fossil fuel infrastructure, especially if that facilitation is using public dollars, tax dollars, that could actually be advancing, say, the, the facilitation of renewables more effectively or the grid such that renewables could have a better distribution network.
0: How will the world view uh, the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Accord?
2: I think for the most part, the world will view the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Accord, and I think at this point, we would be the only country not in the Paris Accord. I think it will be viewed as uh, very negative. I'll go back as as us being an unreliable partner, as us placing ourselves in a position that I think probably weakens us in, in, in many aspects of of energy and scientific enterprises and technology development. And, uh, you know, uh, as a U.S. scientist, you know, I, I am personally um, somewhat embarrassed. Um, to, so so I, I think it's... Um, I think it's, it, it puts us in a very bad position.
0: What about Pompeo's uh, response? The U.S. approach incorporates the reality of the global energy mix and uses all energy sources and technology cleanly, efficiently, including fossil fuels, nuclear energy, and renewable energy. So, just Is that just lip service?
2: You know, it's interesting. If you were to go back and look at um, the Obama policy on energy, um, it was an all-of-the-above policy with the recognition that say fossil fuels and especially natural gas would be part of the transition so i think there is a certain uh, consistency and a certain truth in what both obama and 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 uh, secretary Pompeo is saying Uh, so but I, i i think that you know When Obama said it, he was pushing more things towards um, renewables and and reducing emissions from power plants. When Pompeo is saying he seems to be pushing it more towards, we're going to be boosting up the fossil fuel side of things, um, which I think is uh, short-term politically expedient. It might not even make good economic sense in terms of things like coal. And and definitely puts the mindset on the wrong side of the problem. There are important aspects of framing and what is meant in the subtext of what people are saying.
0: Now that uh, the U.S. is officially out, does the Trump administration have to make more clear what their position is?
2: Well, we're not officially out. We've uh, we have announced that we are going to be coming out, and we actually would not officially be out until the after the the next election in twenty twenty. Because it's, uh, wow, that could out.
0: be interesting.
2: That could be very interesting. So, um, will they be required to make themselves more clear on this problem? I don't think they will feel any compulsion whatsoever to make themselves more clear on this.
0: Uh, would the U.N. just be taking a wait-and-see approach on this, thinking that sooner or later the U.S. will come back around?
2: Well, I think there are a lot of people who are probably doing that with the anticipation that either the political situation will change to do that or that the the economic situation, is, as others move to renewables, Um, will sort of require the the U.S. to to change what I think is probably not only an outlier position, but one that is indefensible from a scientific perspective.
0: Uh, Last question. UN concerned that others may follow suit?
2: I think that uh, there was definitely some concern about that originally. And I think that there is some possibility that that might happen. If you look at the countries, uh, interestingly, that might be associated with the British Empire, like Australia and Canada, that seem to have um, a little more um, polarization on this problem, as well as being large emitters. I think there's been some concern about them um, pulling out. So, so I, I think there is, is a possibility, and, and you know, I, there, there are certain aspects to all of this being voluntary commitments that um, if people find it politically expedient to pull out, they, they might do it. So it depends upon mm. how you want to be viewed by your um, international colleagues, perhaps.
0: Richard Root has been with us, Professor of Climate and Space Sciences and Engineering at the College of Engineering, University of, Mich- of Michigan. Richard, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is some new tech being considered for Canadian police to catch distracted drivers. It's funny because we were chatting about this in regard to uh, the new laws around cannabis and how they were going to detect that still. Uh, distracted driving, the, the major cause of injury and death uh, on uh, Canadian roads, believe it or not. Not drunk driving, not impaired driving, distracted driving. Uh, now, police are considering using a device called a textilizer. However, there are concerns among privacy advocates about its use. I guess, and we'll, we'll talk to Derek Sardo about this, but I guess the idea behind it is, with one fell swoop, uh, the police can find out whether you have been texting or such before you were pulled over and threw the phone down into the console or between the seats. Right, to talk more about all of this, Derek Sardo is with us, President of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca to find out more. He's with us now. Derek, how are you? I'm wonderful, Scott. And yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, thanks for the time as uh, as usual. Uh, tell us about this device. What do you know about the textilizer or the industry or technology?
3: Well. It's very simple. Uh, They have a device that can scan the phone. So after an incident or a pullover, they could hook your cell phone up to this device, and this device would basically download the logs of all the things that happened. So let's say uh, somebody got hit uh, at an intersection at 1235. They could say, oh, that person at 1235 was texting.
0: So, uh, how accurate is this information? What is the chance of it being abused in some way?
3: Well, I I don't think it's very accurate because the technology is evolving so fast. When I write a text in my car while I'm driving, I'm not actually typing. I'm not actually touching my keyboard. I'm using some sort of uh, uh, text-to-speech. So uh, it would show that there was a text based off that, but now, how do I prove that it was using a technology that wasn't me with an input? Now, they're potentially on some of the phones, they could see that were there taps on the phone or swipes, right. and they would be able to back log that to to see what uh, correlate that to when that accident happened or when somebody was pulled over.
0: So theoretically, you could be giving a or uh, dictating a voice text and still be, I guess, caught in this net.
3: I, I think so. I, again, it would depend on the technology and how, how good it is. But uh, if it if it knew that you were using the keyboard, for instance, to actually touch the screen, if it had that, that much metric. Now, I'm going to tell you that phone providers are not going to stand still with that. They'll do something to block that. So there'll, there'll be a fight over this. Now, the, the but the big fight not is not a technology fight, but more of a privacy fight. If they can look at when I'm making phone calls, and if they can look at when I'm looking at, at texts or, or writing texts, they could also look at my app, applications on the phone. They could look at Uh, personal emails that I've written so that's where this kind of gets sticky
0: a uh, former uh, uh, privacy expert, uh, uh, privacy auditor Anne Kavorkin said, I want some, insur- uh, some assurance that the police will not be able to gain access to all of this wealth of information that they are not authorized to access uh, and suggest a third-party audit of the textilizer to determine whether there's a possibility of the police having information beyond whether the driving driver is texting uh, and driving. Uh, once you neuter m- all of this, is this device worth it?
3: Maybe not. Um, and again, like I said earlier, that um, as the operating systems of phones get better and they become more secure, uh, that textilizer may be rendered uh, useless because if, uh, let's say, Android or Apple or uh, BlackBerry or whoever puts some sort of technology in there to block that product from seeing those logs, then it's kind of useless.
0: Uh, Will, do you think we're actually going to see this? I mean, how do police officers catch texters and drivers now? I mean, usually it's, you know, I, I've been with a ride-along with Hamilton Police Service. It's pretty easy to spot. It's like uh, catching fish in a barrel, really. Do we need
1: this?
3: Yeah, I mean, everybody's doing it. The, the problem is we, we see too many deaths uh, that are directly related to this. So um, we, w- we want to combat it. But we want people to be smarter. We want people to start to use technology. I mean, all phones these days have the ability to talk to it. So whether it's Google or Cortana or Siri or Alexa, uh, use the. And I, as I say, Alexa, of course, she uh, goes off in my office here. Uh, there you so, go. She's answering. Yeah. She's, she's gonna. Uh, Did you the mention
0: before. my name, Derek? Do you want something?
3: What can <laughs> exactly. I help you with? Ah, oh, it's crazy. That's so funny. Anyway, uh, y- yes, uh, you know these these technologies exist. Uh, a lot of people don't use them, uh, but they should, especially when they they need to do communication inside um, in, inside uh, their car or or doing it, it doesn't even have to be a car op- operating heavy machinery or whatever their whatever it is. We should be able to use these pieces of technology. Uh, I know, for instance, the, you know the biggest office package in the world is, is, is Microsoft's Office. And they are building that intelligence in to be very uh, uh, text and speech aware so that we can talk to these things and get metrics like uh, emails and text messages and and even read web pages and things so that we can do these things, but in a safer manner. Uh, Will we get to the
0: point where distraction, distracted driving is not an issue? As you mentioned, I mean, most of the cars, most vehicles have access to this sort of stuff, so you don't have to uh, physically touch your uh, device. Is it we're just not using these options?
3: We're not taking advantage of what is
0: already there?
3: I'd say that that's a double-edged sword because as we start to have the technology that can do this very easily, that also opens up a whole other... Can of worms, which is the things that we can do on our phone is just immense. We can, you know, let's still I don't know, take something stupid like banking. We can now start to uh, make withdrawals. Do your
0: online banking while you're in your car,
3: no, and that's not a joke. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we're not far away from that. This is the kind of stuff we are. So. On the one end, the technology is going to help us be safer. But on the other hand, we have so many facets and so many uh, variety of apps that we can use uh, voice-based that it may distract us even more. I, I can't answer that at this point.
0: Considering this is such a problem, and a lot of police services will tell you that this is the number one cause of injury, not impaired driving. It's distracted driving. Considering this is such an issue, is technology doing enough to curb it I mean whether it's the auto manufacturers or the people making the devices themselves
3: yeah so take take the uh, you know the, uh, the DUI thing where you have to blow in breathalyzer before you can drive right we can sort of implement that sort of thing as well phones just don't work when they're connected uh, or, or driving in a car so yeah I think I think I think technology has a place here to reduce the number of deaths by that it doesn't look like people are going to stop but people really need to stop. So, I'm here as an advocate. I see idiots on the road all the time with their, you know, their phone up in front of their face. They're clearly not watching the road. Yeah. Just please start to use technology.
0: Uh so are you concerned that as this does become more prevalent and it is easier to have hands free? I mean, the whole idea is as long as your hands free, you're fine. Um but now we'll be doing so much more that even having hands free it's still right. going to be we'll more be, of a. Uh, it's more we'll of a be, distraction. Uh,
3: doing some banking, we'll be driving with our knees, and we'll be eating a big hamburger. <laughs>
0: you can't do that.
3: <laughs> no, you're not supposed to. Again, the le- the less distractions. The better our roads are going to be. So, people, beware.
0: Are you surprised that the automakers—and maybe I'm putting too much emphasis on the automakers here—but are you surprised that they and the technology companies haven't tried harder to get a handle on this? Because this would be a selling feature, wouldn't it? Or is it a case where you know we want people doing as much as they can on all of this stuff, and we—you well, know—we're trying to promote it. We're not trying to—we're not trying to throttle it
3: back. I think you'll see a big, major change in the next five years on how our screens on our cars are so connected to our phones. So right now they're sort of disjointed, but with Apple CarPlay and Android auto and uh, QNX X from BlackBerry and Microsoft's coming out with a new one, there's all these technologies that are going to be in there. So the phone itself is a conduit for the screen. So the screen doesn't have any intelligence like our current cars do. Yeah. And the intelligence will come from the phone. So, much better we can implement this by putting something at the phone level that says, if it's connected to this car, right. you can't do A, B, and C, which is smart. I think it's great, uh, and, I, and I think we'll, we will see that in the next five years.
0: So is this less about equipping a car with technology as opposed to equipping a car uh, with the technology that's needed to hook up to your device. In other words, anything in the car is merely a monitor type thing, delivering it from you to your device. Uh, the device is not in the car; it's in you. It's in your it's, hand. That's,
3: ex- that's exactly the trend, and and that that's a good trend for for us because uh, I don't know. You know, if you have, let, let's take GPS for instance, the GPS in your car is not necessarily even close to the GPS yeah. on our phones.
0: Or is so, it updated as much for well, that It's now. not
3: updated, it doesn't have traffic. It, you know, there's a lot of benefits to having this connect- connectivity. So yes, we'll, we'll see that. Most cars will will go with a sort of an open standard where we see that both have Apple CarPlay and it has Android Auto, and there are a couple other players. So. I think the phone is 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 crucial but I think the the manufacturers of the of the cars will start to use this technology and then we can implement steps to very easily uh throttle people from distracted driving. So
0: why have the police carry around a text a textilizer or whatever you want to call it? Why would the technology just not be built into the devices so just much like a mechanic goes up and plugs something into your car and gets a total readout a police officer could do the same thing.
3: Yeah, I don't think it's going to fly. That's my that's my uh, thought on it. But um, too much of an invasion uh, the, the of privacy. privacy. The privacy thing yeah. is going to push it to to a place where it gets tabled and tabled and tabled, and by that time we'll have different technology that can address this at a different level.
0: Uh, do you think we will see the car companies step forward, uh, up, uh, step up on this in the sense uh, and as a result of the fact that this gets so bad and so many people are being hurt, it's much like seat belts or drinking and driving?
3: Absolutely. They have a, they have a duty. They're the ones that are selling these cars. They have a duty to bring these standards. But our government has to do something to, to make those mandates, right? We can't just uh, tell a car company to do that because it's safer. We want, we want to put something mandates in place so that uh, they have to have a certain level of security on their technology. And technology is this... Is, is relatively new in cars. Yeah. I mean, it really is, and, and uh, it's just getting better every day.
0: But is this, when you think about it, uh, from a safety standpoint, from from an auto manufacturer's standpoint, is this any different than an airbag or seatbelts?
3: No, not really. It's the same thing. And, and again, that, that those things are mandated, right? We have to yeah. have seatbelts. We have to have airbags. And again technology will be in there, that, that that conversation as we go forward.
0: Derek Sardo has been with us, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca to find out more. There is new tech being considered for Canadian police to catch distracted drivers called a textilizer. Do you think this will see the light of day or not?
3: I don't think so. But anyway, I can say this message. Be safe, everybody. Keep those phones away.
0: Thank you, Derek. Take care. Derek Sardo, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca to find out more. <laughs>